Three, two, two, one. One. Let's, Let's go! go! Yes! Yes! Yes, indeed! <laughs> the amount of energy in this show. Welcome to the PBE Podcast with Mr. Alan Bertain. Skips is always here, the co-host of the Permian Basin Experience Podcast. And we had certainly experience from the Permian Basin and a hell of an experience just in this show. Skippo, catch me up, man. The latest, the greatest. What have you been up to, man? Dude, just grinding on the PhD, man. I mean, <laughs> go! <laughs> Whoa. It's been uh it's been it's been a blast. I mean, for me, just kind of taking all the knowledge that I've had and learned here in the US and applying it in Australia, it, it's just been it's been just yeah. amazing. It's been amazing just having my mind blown by the geology there and, you know, just the little nuances of, you know, how they do. I mean, for example, with I, I know I've talked to you about this off air, but in Australia, they classify their basins in a stratotectonic framework. So, yeah. for example, the Permian Basin would be known as the Tobosa Basin, and that would be your lower Paleozoic section. And then they would be the Permian Basin, which would probably be your pen through your Permian. And then they would call something else for, you know, your Mesozoic section, right? So based on the tectonics through time, that's how everything's been broken down. But yeah, it's just been a blast just diving into data and just, you know, letting my mind just, you know, wrap my head around as much Pub, as many publications as I can. It's it's just been absolutely yeah. out of control. And I know you've been in San Antonio doing some things and now you're finally back at the Institute and back to grinding again. That's right. Yeah. Start oil and gas company. And let's find out what happens. <laughs> like we Good do. things. Good things like are going to happen. Yeah. I'm looking at Australia on uh, cracks of the world map. What part of Australia yeah. is, your, is your PhD, Skippo? Just real it's quick. In, uh, it's in the uh, GAB. So it's in Queensland, Australia. So Northeast Australia. So the Great Artesian oh. Basin and specifically the Aramanga Basin. Uh, the study oh, oh. area. Yeah. The study area that I have is around the size of the Permian Basin. So completely onshore. But the, onshore. Deep, the deeper part is called Cooper, isn't it? Yeah. Is it, so yeah. Well, the Cooper, Cooper Basin is just west of the okay. Aramanga. Yeah. So yeah, it's. So the Cooper Basin is part of the whole GAB, so the Great Artesian Basin. But yeah, the Cooper Basin is where there's active oil and gas production now. And then they're trying to do a full resource evaluation of these other basins. And they're and that's kind of the nice thing. They've kind of given me, you know, the free reign to just let my mind do its thing. Obviously under control and guidance, but they're they're letting me kind of just just be skips. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, three of our students' teams are working right now in the Cooper Aramanga Basin in the oil part. So you may we'll invite uh, you to some of our student presentations. No, I, I need to I need to talk I need to talk to all of them. Absolutely, <laughs> you'll be very welcome. And, and pick their brains apart. <laughs> oh yeah, we've got some really good teams. We've got uh, let's see, University of North Dakota, University of Perugia, Italy. Ooh, and I'm trying to remember who's the Memphis. third one. Memphis. Memphis. That's right, Memphis. Oh. So you want to meet some good people. By the way, Perugia, Italy, they have the chocolate festival there every year. I haven't been. I want to go. I, let's do a show over there. Hey. I, I, I'm in. No question. We can stay with some family. Okay. He's got right. family there. <laughs> Couch or floor. We don't care. We're going. I'm open for that invite. That sounds awesome. I can't believe that tied together. That was awesome. We definitely, That would be a great second follow-up tr- show between doing more with Mr. Allen and doing more about the, what evolved and everything that we're doing. We, we're really integrating this network and expanding this network that we've built from the Permian experience. Now we're expanding it out. 
And uh, so traditionally in our introductions, we like to say what dropped out? What was it about this Mm -hmm. show? If time spent in the last couple of hours, what what did you get from this show, Mr. Bertain? I love the energy and enthusiasm that you guys bring. I think that is contagious. I think we need a lot of that in our industry, (laughs) really. There's a lot of doom and gloom. And, you know, the only way we're going to keep going is if we're enthused about Mother Nature in part. And, you know, there's going to be ups and downs, but you need the energy. You got to keep going. I like your style. I I really, uh, you know, said that to my young colleagues that you guys bring a tremendous energy. I think you're entrepreneurs. The future will be more entrepreneurial than it has been in the last 50 years. Those those Mm -hmm. simple careers, 30 years, one company, retire, largely gone. It's going to be you make it up as you go along and you you keep learning new things. You keep uh, developing new ideas. You guys are both doing that. And, you know, uh, I I hope to keep working with you. You know, I work with a mentor who's, I'm going to say, about 30 years older than I am. And so I tell the students, well, you you think I'm an old guy who's going to retire. I'm going to be working for another 30 years. Touch wood. And so I hope I'm going to work with you guys for another 30 years. I really enjoy working with you. I think you're great. And I'm going to support your show. Right on. Likewise, sir. Likewise. So glad we were able to cross paths. And and it's just like you said, I mean, everything going on for all of us, but we were able to somehow join in and Jonathan Torres, who set it up and said, man, I think this would be a great show. And what, what kind of, his, his vision of that and, and making that connection. I mean, we have many, many shows to do, I think, together. I think we have an incredible amount of value to bring in every one of these shows that we can do. And uh, maybe we get together for this live show. We've been talking about going to Midland, end of April. Now we might change that date a little bit, but it's going to be within the next month or two. And we want to go live from Midland, from the destination, with all the technology and all these ideas. We bring in legends from the Permian that we grew up listening about. We get to talk to them. We get a live band. I mean, it's, it's going to be the real deal. And it's going to be a lot of good information. New information applied to new world, real world applications. Um, Skips, what dropped out for you from this? Oh, man. I mean, Alan is someone now that I aspire to be by the end of my career. Being able to, like you said, take risk at a very young age and learn from those risks and not, you know, like you're saying, putting your head down and saying, I'm done with oil. I'm going to just get into consulting or, you Mm. know, some, some other industry. It's like you put your, you know, you put the pedal to the metal and you kept grinding away. And, and like you said, it was that, that enthusiasm that you have that, you know, you went from starting your own company to now all of a sudden, now you're investing in a $2 billion venture as, as a working interest owner. And then Mm -hmm. now how you're passing it down to the next generation and inspiring and mentoring these students with Evolve. I mean, this whole show was just from start to finish, just fantastic. And I, I would quick closing comment, you know, when I work with young people, it's like, you know, really, uh, all I want to see is that you're, you're motivated and you're interested and my good friend, Mario, who's sitting right there, he just showed up on, uh, in my office one day, you know, mutual introduction <laughs> And he said, I'm interested in this business. I said, that's good enough for me. You can come with me and we'll figure things out. Yeah. To be honest, I didn't know what he could do, really. And you <laughs> mentioned Jonathan Torres, kind of the same thing. And of course, before that, I think you met Jesus Navarez. Yep. And, you know, everybody has kind of unique sets of skills that they bring. And right. my three colleagues here have actually quite different sets of skills that have really helped us as we have worked together. Jesus is uh, incredibly good on, on the, the workstation, the data management, attention to detail. Yeah. Mario, you can kind of get a sense. He's our kind of 
uh, marketing and, uh, you know, graphics. And, and the reason we're in a lot of these things we're doing is courtesy of Mario. And Jonathan, you know, I was kind of trying to figure him out. And I said, one day I said, you know, Jonathan, I think you're kind of a wheeler dealer guy. You kind of create <laughs> opportunities. And he created this. We're here because of Jonathan. So well, again, you know, young people, just give them a chance. Yeah. Let, them, let them bring out their skills and they're going to do a lot of good stuff. And that's what I'm in part here to do. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what you created. And that's what I got from this show is personally uh, the, the concept that we actually go through in our reality of making an investment. And it's simple as your time and your attention into the investment. And the fact that you're not going to get a return necessarily on that investment for many, many years to come. You're, you're, you're planting seeds you're feeding them, you're nourishing them, you built this foundation to allow them to grow and to be well-fed. That is potentially what is the biggest missing component that I see with what's going on after this reshuffle. And what are we all doing? We're all investing a lot more in our own time and attention. We're all certainly investing a lot more in our own time and attention. And you're going to make mistakes. You need to be ready to manage these mistakes and, and you'll be fine. You need to integrate with your investment, which is your network. That's what it's really all about. This Evolve is an amazing network that's going to be developing in all directions for 40, 50 years. And you're going to be, you're making that investment. You built this and uh, man, we can be a part of that in any way and do these shows and help explain what they're doing and how we can talk about more of this. I think this is absolutely the future. And I enjoyed this show tremendously. Let's officially start the conception part of the show with Mr. Alan Berté. So that the notes were incredible. And as the conception part of the show, traditionally with uh, PB podcast and always, we just want to get to know you. It's like we're at the convention. We just ran into each other. I want to know everything about you from the beginning. But with your notes, I want to specifically cover obviously where you're from there's an interesting story there and at skipo i'll ask you this question while we learn his story how many guests do you think we've had on the show that were actually born in the permian basin i want to ask you that question (laughs) think about it because i i I was thinking about i said i don't even i can't even i don't know i really don't know uh and so we'll go with that obviously into academia your young professional career Mm. and and really what what's what struck me on the kind of part two of this is when you started your own company. And then that led to managing a $2 billion fund for exploration. Well, just to, to be exact, I was one of the employees. I was not the person managing it, but I, I was very close in there. There were right. about 15 of us, so I saw it close up. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So that's 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 going to be awesome. That's what we want to dive into. I want to get to know you, Mr. Bertain. I, I gave you a nickname. I said, Alan popping bottles of champagne, Bertain. <laughs> I'll take it. Well, you know, we, we've come up with various nicknames as we've thought about things. I, I will. T- I, I will tell you one real quick here, which is, you know, obviously my core strength is geophysics and seismic interpretation. So I have a little lab coat next door, like, you know, a doctor's coat. Yep. And uh, my wife came up with, how about we call you Dr. Allen, the geophysician? And uh, anyway, so I think I might prefer yours. Yeah. (laughs) But I just want to warn you, if you give Troy the go ahead on this, it probably will stick. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Ah, Let's take it. Based on personal experience. (laughs) Let's break new ground. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So you were born in in the Permian Basin, sir. Tell us about Uh, it. I was indeed. So first of all, I should tell you, I'm uh, 
right behind me is the background. Not many of you may have heard of, even those who live in the Permian Basin may not have heard of Slayton, Texas, small town just a short distance southeast of Lubbock. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason I was born here and I almost wasn't is, of course, I'm second generation oil business. My dad was in the oil business, so I've, I can really say I've lived my entire life in the oil business. <laughs> So my dad and my family were living over in Egypt at the time. He had been stationed uh, to do basic exploration in Egypt. And wow. so my mom was there. And Who was he working for? Well, you know, uh, I believe at the time it was like they called the, uh, the companies by local names. I think they called it Sahara Petroleum. Wow. But it was part of Conoco, really. Okay. And then, you know, later, by the way, we may talk about that later. We went to Libya and they called that Oasis Oil Company. But that was really just part of Conoco. Wow. So anyway, they were in, uh, in Egypt, Alexandria, Egypt. Very well, you know, very famous place. And my parents were married. My mother was expecting. And I was about to be born in Egypt. And then a piece of history hit. Something called the Suez Crisis. 1956 was the Suez Crisis. It's probably more familiar to people in Europe. But it was a big event. It was... Hmm. basically where some of the European countries took possession of the Suez Canal from Egypt. And the U.S. at the time, President Eisenhower, was not supportive of that. So uh, anyway, the U.S. kind of stepped in and said some things. But the bottom line, before the situation was settled, they took all the non-Egyptian people, including my family, they put them on World War II uh, landing craft vessels, What? shipped them onto boats, and sent them away. And by the way, took, took possession of all their houses and Whoa. furniture. Oh my God. So anyway, long story short, if it wasn't for that, you know, well-known European, I'll call it North African piece of history, I would have been born in Alexandria in Egypt. But Whoa. the good Lord's smiled on me. And so I ended Dragon up being born yeah. in Slayton, Texas. <laughs> wow. Uh, of course, as geologists, we should say, if you get a map of the horseshoe atoll or atoll, depending how you present it, uh, yeah, you pronounce it, you'll see that Slayton, Texas is in there very close. So you talk about being born in the heart of the oil business, the Permian Basin itself. But boy, the, the horseshoe atoll being close to that, what a way to start your life. So I got off to a good start. Yep. And you get academia, you got your bachelor's degree in geology, you move into the, the University of Texas, Austin, and now you're really, you're getting a lot of information about the Permian. When did you actually learn the Horseshoe Atoll? When, how old were you when you actually realized you were born in the Horseshoe Atoll? That, you know, I mean, maybe around college time or, or right. undergraduate. Uh, now, you know, because my dad was in the oil business, we traveled all over the world. So I have to tell you, um, you know, my, my time in heaven, Slayton, Texas, was actually very short-lived because before I was even one year old, he got shipped down to Venezuela. Wow. And oh. uh, so we go down. My brother was born in Venezuela. Wow. And, uh, so what they call it when you're in Venezuela, and by the way, my good friend Mario here is from Venezuela. When you're born in Maracaibo, they call you Maracucho. So it's funny. Here I was born in the Permian Basin. My brother was born in Lake Maracaibo, another great oil region. He was a Maracucho. Anyway, uh, then Catholic. long story short, uh, yeah, I ended up in, in the UK because my dad was transferred there for a while. So I did my undergraduate work there, Imperial College. 
that's probably the first time I really started to understand geology to answer your question. So, you know, during my oh. undergraduate days. Is that the, uh, the university that actually developed or came up with the IBA program in, in the Imperial Barrel Award? I was there at the inception of IBA. My professor. That is crazy. I was a student of Professor Richard Selly, and he came up with this. So, so what we did is he ran the master's program, and we, the little rinky-dink undergrads, we got to sit in and watch the big guys, you know, the graduate students. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and so he conceived this thing before it became IBA, where he did uh, all the graduate students were, had their own presentations, and he would bring in big names from Shell, like wow. a very well-known uh, name, Dr. Delaney. He's, some of you may have heard of him. He's the person that did all the work on sand dunes because, you know, oh. in the North Sea, they discovered mm -hmm. oil in sand dunes. And so Shell sent Dr. Glennie to all the deserts of the world. He was there, one of the judges. Chevron had a judge. So literally, Dr. Richard Selly came up with this at Imperial College. I was one of the little undergrads watching it. And so that is indeed the same one. So, I was going to yes. say, so not only did oil come in the family, but I mean, as far as, you know, your education was concerned, the conception of the, you know, one of the most prestigious programs now and all for all graduate oil and gas geologists. Wow. That's, that's incredible. That, I, I, I mean, I watched I'm it. not saying the cards were stacked in your favor for uh -huh. oil and gas, but I'm pretty, yeah. <laughs> well, what I will tell you is that, uh, yeah, it was fun watching it, but you know, at that time, again, before it became Imperial Barrel with AAPG, the teams had to come in and draw their own little, come up with clever names, right. And have their own logos. And I'll never forget one, team i think there were some guys from norway that's logo and uh, they, they called themselves rock bottom oil company and it was like little carving of a backside of a human being so i'll never forget rock bottom oil you know and anyway but yeah that, that i was there i will tell you we may talk about this later you know there are people who are inspirational and richard selly and by the way we just had a reunion for from our class who graduated around that time and i saw him there and talked to him had a picture with him wow. but he was really inspirational he was when we were just undergrads he was so cool he was so excited about the oil business and wow. i'll share a quick story that i think your young listeners or younger than me might be interested <laughs> in I told him, I said, well, isn't oil going to run out, Dr. Selly? Don't you think that I should be thinking about something else? And he told me, not in your lifetime. Don't even worry about it. And, and you know, if you ask me, we're going to still be needing oil for the career of this next generation. We're going yeah, to sure. gradually transition. You know, sure, we're going to transition and everything. But, hey, we're still going to need shirts and uh, plastic and other things. So there's a future still for those interested in the E&P business. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. The transition is not today by any means. Otherwise, it would already happen. I mean, the industry mm -hmm. was under the most stress in all of its history to be replaced by any alternative, and they couldn't do it. Couldn't step up and get it done. Regulatory, whatever you want to call it, just bad engineering that doesn't work that well. Whatever you want to call the results of what that was, it didn't work. And so now we realize that there's no way to move forward and keep doing what we do without a healthy price for the barrel and a lot of people to work out there and get this efficient energy back out of the ground. Demand is coming up. Supply has been drastically shut down. And now we're supposed to respond like this amazing quick, you know, we are efficient, but come on, it ain't going to happen overnight. 
It ain't going to happen overnight. There's literally the physical hands. They, there's not enough people that even know how to do what we do. I mean, you just, mm -hmm. it's the reality. So I'm in favor of a record price, probably within the next few years. I'm just going to go ahead and say it because we're not going to be able to respond to this demand. And that's the reality of putting your eggs in a basket, thinking that it was going to be some transition. And it ain't here. It ain't here. Yeah. We got to work. Let's get back to work. I don't know and, and, you know, I'll make another quick point along those lines. I may be messing up your order here. I, no, I don't know. No, but, no, no, no. But, but what I'll tell you is, you know, we'll talk later. I work a lot with students. You know, I'm passionate about the next generation. And I want them not to make all the many mistakes I made and be as successful. I'm being a little bit facetious. But no, you know, hey, we all learn lessons, right? And we right. can make somebody else do a little bit better. Oh, but, man. you know, there is no doubt that many of the students right now, maybe most, are very interested in the transition. They're very interested in carbon capture. They're very interested sure. in geothermal groundwater. And you know what I tell them? Do you know what the best training to be a carbon capture geoscientist is? To be a petroleum geologist. Oil and gas geologist. Why, what is the you best training to, find to be a groundwater? You need water? to find void space in the subsurface, right? There it is. <laughs> and, and here's the big difference. And this is why I'm not kind of joking. As oil companies, we chase a big prize, right? It's worth a lot of money. So we can afford to go acquire, like you had your guest from Fairfield to talk to you about all those nodes and those recording channels. That's we right. can afford that technology. So when I, as a geoscientist, sit down here, I've got the best information, the Schlumberger logs, the whatever, right. geochemical data, the, uh, the latest state-of-the-art seismic. When you're looking for groundwater, you got two little electrodes and you stick them in the ground and then you get like these little circular things that are magnetic <laughs> fields. Yeah. You've got to interpret that. That's right. Yeah. Or you get two hangers and when you cry, the hangers will cry. When you hit water, those babies turn. That, yeah. Yeah, that's their equivalent to the seismic method, <laughs> maybe. But, but in all fairness, the main point I'm making is that, you know, you've got to learn that multidisciplinary, as we call right. it, which means logs, rock, geochemistry, grav mag. And the best place to learn that is in ENP. And so that's why I tell the students, you want the best training to be a carbon capture geologist? Go work at an oil company for a while. Now, if you go straight to carbon capture, that's fine. And I think many will. But you can still start in the oil business, oh, be productive in the short term, and be preparing for where you want to go as a carbon yeah. capture geoscientist. I definitely, groundwater. I, def I definitely believe you make some very, very good points there, especially from the perspective of working in oil and gas, because in doing so, you understand the workflow to get to that, you know, find that void space for carbon capture as efficiently as possible, opposed to, because, you know, in oil, you know, you need to get that, you know, you need to find your next prospect, right? As quickly and as effectively as possible. And that's just something that a lot of other industries, they don't have that sense of urgency that oil and gas does. So with that, having that as, as your backbone for either carbon capture or hydrology, I think is invaluable. So I will tell you that we, you know, we work with the students and we have lots of mentors. You know, I happen to have, well, I hate to say it about 40 years of experience. I have someone else who's got 60 years of experience, still well, passionate about the industry, by the way. And I joke with the students. I said, you know who the best carbon capture geoscientist is in the room, me, or if the 60 year person is there, him. He spent 60 years thinking about the subsurface and the complexities of Mother Nature. He's going to be the best. I might be the second best in the room. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's interesting we talk about carbon capture so much because it's a fascinating subject and it does have a lot of attention. It looks like there's definitely a lot of money going in there. We can, we can, we can pull CO2 out of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. 
and start violating, you know, messing with that. What's interesting is it's difficult enough to find a body of rock that has the porosity and permeability and the caps that you can actually keep it and, and do something with it. But it goes beyond that. Carbon gases injected into reservoirs is definitely a chemical reaction going on. It's doing physical and chemical things. So what we really need to do probably, in my opinion, with carbon sequestration is find not only where you have void space and porosity permeability that you need the cap rock, but the byproduct should try to create as much hydrogen as possible. We need more hydrogen in our atmosphere. That's what the planet is constantly kind of losing. Hydrogen and helium burn off the atmosphere. Everything else stays. But those two we're losing. So if we can do anything, let's get that, some of that back in the system. Maybe that will settle things down or actually do something that we can actually measure and see. I'm interested to see if, if anybody's going that way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert on carbon capture. I do hear the students express a lot of interest. And again, I think geoscience will, our petroleum geoscience training will be fantastic. And I will tell you a quick thing is the biggest thing in carbon capture in some ways is the seal because that carbon uh, CO2 tends to leak. And that's what they're finding in the real world. It looks good. And then guess what? It leaks. So now you're, you're burning CO2 to run pumps to run a carbon CO2 recycling system, which is highly inefficient. You're making things worse. Wow. Good news is that, you know, I think there's some great sites here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Again, it's all mm -hmm. about the seals. we got great sites here in the U.S. with outstanding seals. See? So we're going to have a big carbon capture future for those who are interested oh, yeah. right here in the Permian Basin, in the Gulf wow. of Mexico, onshore. Wow, that's awesome. Those chimneys of, of CO2 need to be turned into just hydrogen and helium, things we need back. If we can get that going, that transition, man, that what an amazing ingenuity and just a mm -hmm. accomplishment for, for humans to get something like that done. That would be amazing. Could yep. Right in the Permian, you're saying. I think so. You know, I think all these basins, we're lucky in the U.S. We've got some very large basins. We've got some, you know, we have some very complex ones, but relatively undeformed ones. And, you know, where it's less deformed, like the Permian Basin, it has its complex parts, but a lot of yeah. it kind of subsided gently. And if you're in the Denver Basin, a lot mm -hmm. of it subsided gently, the Illinois Basin. So those are great places. Now, somebody showed me a, their, uh, what, what am I going to poster child uh, pilot project in Southeast Asia? I won't name any countries. And they said, here's a seismic line across my pilot project. The government wants to inject all our CO2 in. And I looked at that seismic line. I said, that must be one of the most faulted areas I've ever seen. And you guys are <laughs> going to start injecting in there. I said, you better call the, tell the government to call me as a consultant. I'm going to tell them not to put their CO2 in there. Right, unless it makes a good product. If it has a good byproduct, then do it. But if it doesn't, yeah, that's the same. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry if I'm throwing your, uh, your cycle off here of what you were trying to do. But No, no, no. Please. No, no it, there is no cycle. These conversations are amazing. It's really something that's, that's I'm captivated by your experience and your ability to kind of uh, share that wisdom and knowledge that you have and your stories and how they relate. And it's just I'm, I'm loving this conversation. Definitely. Uh, take us into starting your own company. What did you learn as a new owner and all that stuff? How did that transition into ultimately what I'd like to get some, a little bit more on before the drill down and maybe we can go deeper in the drill down on this subject, but that 2 billion, that investment on exploration, a huge budget, huge team, huge focus. That's a, I love the, just the sound of that story. Okay. Well, let's start with my first company and, you know, 
now I should tell you, you know, I lived in the UK, right? And uh, in the UK, I don't know if anybody around in the Permian Basin watches things like Monty Python. You know, there's a certain sense of humor in the UK. So if ever something I say sounds a little bit odd or kind of joking, I might be using the English sense of humor. So uh, just, just, you know, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but let's start by talking about <laughs> myself. So I like to tell my story. So there I was, like you say, good start, right? Imperial College. I went to UT Austin. And you know what? I, I was there, the boom of student hiring. So 1980, I had, uh, I had like five job offers or something like that. I was so cocky, as were all of us with these recruiters in those days. It was like, you know what? And I was talking to Exxon. I said, yeah, they're the biggest. Yeah. Hey, Mr. Recruiter at Exxon. He was a big name. And uh, I said, I want to go to Denver. And he goes, oh, okay, let me see. Next thing I know, I'm in Denver. Whoa. You know? Yeah. Cool. Now, now, by the way, a tip for your young people. One of the people who interviewed with that same person, um, and he was, like I say, a big name within Exxon. He said to that person, so, Fred, where do you see yourself in about five years? And Fred said, well, probably working for an independent or something like that. Wow. Obviously, Fred didn't get too far in that interview process. But anyway, long story short, in Denver, I, joined, I arrived in December of 1980. 1981, you may remember, was a big peak in, in mm. the prices. And anyway, then I like to say, so I had one good year in my career, and it's been downhill ever since, you know, in 1981, go look at the price charts. Right. But uh, anyway, but long story short, come 1984, I kind of uh, concluded that, you know, I, I could do more than I could do, uh, do in a corporate environment. So the way I like to tell my funny story is, yeah, I spent about four years in the oil business. I decided I knew everything there was to know about the oil business. So I just decided to form my own oil company or my own consulting company at the time. That was my first business, four years of experience. I don't know, 26 years old or maybe 27 wow. Wow. years old. So apparently what I didn't know is about prices because I picked like the worst time ever because this, I did this just before the crash of 86. Sure. So here I am, this enthusiastic person from Exxon, you know, and I come to the crash of 86 and you all know what happened in the crash of 86. Oil dropped tremendously. So suddenly here I am as just one little person. And by the way, a bit of information for everybody, if you don't know this, when you're at Exxon, you know, you're viewed by everybody as representing Exxon. So guess what? When I was at Exxon, oh, Alan, let's take you out to lunch. You know, you want to come to lunch? Hey, we're inviting you to whatever it was, you know, the golf oh, yeah. tournament, et cetera. When I go out, Alan, on my own, it's like, Alan, yeah. I, I don't know if I remember you. Uh, oh, man. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of, again, that's yeah. my little English humor exaggerating. <laughs> yeah. but, but just remember, when you're representing a company, it's one thing. When you're on your own, it's another thing. Anyway, I, I had to work through the crash of 86, and I actually brought a few people, a small team around me, and it was a, you know, it was a tough time. I mean, there was no work, there, you know, no consulting work, et cetera. But somehow I, I got through that, and here's what I'll tell you, that those lessons I learned in the crash of 86, I have kept with me for my whole career. Wow. So when people say, oh, you know, Alan, he's so cheap, you know, when he can buy a thousand dollar desk he buys the fifty dollar desk guess what that's the lessons of the crash of 86 wow. so i've never forgotten those lessons this industry i recommend that most people try and live with the 1986 or whichever crash is your favorite one mindset <laughs> yeah. because things go up and things go no. down but if you're kind of 
operating at a very cost-effective level, you'll find a way to make it through. Absolutely. So anyway, sorry about maybe kind of roundabout, but yeah, that was the first company. Wow. You know, I survived and it taught me to be creative and think about business development. Mm -hmm. And that has stood me in good stead through, through mm -hmm. my career. And I recommend everybody get familiar yeah. with that aspect. Business. I, bet, I mean, at the time, obviously, it wasn't, you know, a good, good thing to happen. But, you know, in the long term, those lessons that you've learned are invaluable, I feel. I mean, you would not be in the position you are today if that crash didn't happen when it did. I mean, absolutely. am I, am, am I right? Yeah. Or, okay. You're absolutely right. And, you know, there were kind of really key moments where it's like, do I continue with this or do I not? And then something would happen, you know, like out yeah. of the blue, somebody, and, and there is, there's a situation where I was really becoming, you know, coming to a difficult position. You know, I, I owed some money, et cetera, et cetera. And then the phone rings. It's like, uh, hey, Alan, would you like, and I happen to speak French, as you could tell, maybe by my name. And somebody says, hey, I'm running a seismic crew in Spain. It's CGG. They're a French company. Nobody can understand what the heck they're saying, sort of thing. And again, wow. a little bit of exaggeration. But no, you know, would you like to be the bird dog yeah. on the seismic crew? And I said, of course, that's up my alley. What's a bird dog? A bird dog, someone who QCs, whatever, you you know, like the equivalent okay. of someone who goes on a rig when you've got a logging run to make sure that the job is done right. Wow. So yeah. This was the oil company saying, I got these guys in the field. And obviously, the, the exploration manager doesn't want to be there in the field. He says, you come here, you speak French, you can work with them, you can build the rapport. So was this, really, was this onshore or uh, offshore? It was onshore in the Pyrenees. Okay. So by okay. the way, beautiful place just north of Barcelona, if any of you have ever mm. been there. So here I am, you know, it's like, oh, okay, I got to go check on the seismic crew climbing up this hillside in these peaks with these great views. You know, wow, that's yeah. a tough assignment. Oh, man, that's rough. <laughs> How did you survive? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I had the what's called the Costa Brava close by. That's, by the way, Salvador Dali was born right there on the Costa Brava. So you got things to see. But the, the main thing on that story, it's not so much about the speaking, the French, but it's about being able to relate to them and build a rapport with a French seismic crew. So it takes mm -hmm. a French speaking person, you know, so but that was an example of where I was kind of at the end of my tether, so to speak. And it's like, man, maybe I need to give up on this oil business stuff. <laughs> and the phone rings completely out of the blue. And, you know, someone had heard of me, obviously, through some back channel, but. There you go. So this industry has ups and downs. Sometimes you got to persevere and there will be tough times. You know, I'm not going to say there won't be to, to the right. next generation. Mm -hmm. I feel like you're speaking directly to me. It just relates mm -hmm. with so much of 2020 and where things have gone and how it's gone. I mean, it's amazing to hear that story and, and still see your enthusiasm. That's what can't be beaten down. We got to have the enthusiasm. <laughs> That's all we got at the end of the day. Anyway. Well, you know, we're fortunate. You know, I happen to be in the part of the oil business where we try to understand Mother Nature, you know, one of my favorite topics. And, you know, that is so challenging. No matter how many millions of nodes we put on the surface to get the wiggles that I love to look at, no matter what the latest log curve is that, you know, our friends at Schlumberger are developing, we still don't fully understand it. We're still making our best guess. So Mother Nature will always keep us challenged. I like to say, you know, what we do is far more uh, involved than any Sherlock Holmes, you know, novel you may read or Poirot or whatever, you know. I mean, this is real detective work here. It's not just, this is the real world. So that's what keeps many people going. Just the endless challenges. You've got to be curious. And, and there's always more insight you can gain. You can keep trying and, and 
from the business side, you get that extra insight, you got a business opportunity, you can make some money, hopefully. Wow. All right. This is just transitioned on its own into the drill down segment of the PBE podcast, because what I think we just built and designed is a great discussion around just I want to talk basic fundamentals of geophysics and how we use it to de-risk our exploration. I want to talk about that, apply to the Permian Basin, your perspective, get some of those challenges you are aware of, and how are you, you know, deconvolving that. I would love to talk about that. And then at the end of the, of the drill down, let's, let's dive into that, that $2 billion uh, adventure that you were on. Okay. Getting that exploration and, and going after that. That's what we want to do in the drill down. Are you guys up for that? Sure. Yeah, yeah let's do it. Three, two, one. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we are officially in the drill down segment with Alan Bertain. Sir, please doctor us up on the fundamentals of sound waves penetrating a layered earth, reflecting off those layers, coming back to microphones and recording what those layers could be possibly doing in the subsurface, providing an image of what this layering looks like at high resolution. Fundamentally explain that. Please. Well, you know, the way I like to explain it to, to lay people, not that your audience is, is necessarily <laughs> that, but I like to start with ultrasounds, right? Most people now have seen babies and ultrasounds. Yeah. I mean, these are just ultrasounds of the earth. They have very similar characters. I mean, an ultrasound, you know, you put it there on yeah. a, a mother's belly yep. and it does the same thing. It sends little waves down. They bounce off the baby. And so what do you uh, see, first of all, on, when you look at the ultrasound? You see the overall shape, right? So you can see right. the head, you can see Hard hands. Parts. Hard parts, yep. Yeah, so you, you see the shape, and seismic is fantastic and has been fantastic for many years at being the, seeing shapes. And, of course, we all know oil's lighter than water, so we can see where the oil goes up to, right? Structural anticlines or three-way closures against the fault. So seismic has always been great at... Uh, mapping structure even in the days when it was 2d when, when yeah. my dad was shooting the seismic in uh, <laughs> slayton texas um so that's the first thing but you know of course over time the more nodes we put out there like your fairfield uh, uh person told you etc the sharper those images, the more we see those small faults that could impact the reservoir compartments and everything so first of all we see the shape and so we make structure maps just like geologists do in the field with their plane tables and so on so that's key and that's, that's really important. Now, the next thing is, is I, I think you implied, Troy, is that you look at that ultrasound and you see different densities of color, or it's all black and white, but different densities of black and white, right? And as you said, if it's really dark color, that might be something hard, like a bone. And if it's kind of a translucent color, that might be like tissue or something. And, you know, it's also like, it's also like an x-ray. Actually, x-ray would be just as good of an analogy. Huh. So, that's so Think of that. So, so first of all, we get the shape down there. So we know where the low points, that's where your hydrocarbons are generated. Where the faults, that's where your hydrocarbons migrate into reservoirs. Where the highs, that's where your hydrocarbons are generally going to. So that's good. Right. So then by looking at those different color densities, the same ones you look at in an ultrasound or an x-ray, now I can understand what is on each side of those layers. So when I go to the field, you walk an outcrop in the field, right? You'll walk on one layer. You'll walk on a shale, and then you've got a rigid sandstone, and uh, that's a, a very major interface in the field, right? You'll see the topography change as you go across mm -hmm. those. Well, the seismic picks those up, right? Mm -hmm. So whenever 
If I'm in the middle of a huge, thick shale package, I get no reflections. So it's transparent. It's like the tissues yeah. in the baby or on the x-ray. The minute I hit like a big, so I'm going from a, a wolf camp shale to a whatever, we'll call it, there's a little limestone layer. Suddenly the seismic knows that just like the x-ray does. Bang, something's shifted. The seismic gives you a big kick there, you know, a wiggle, yeah. as we call it sometimes for fun. So it gives you a big kick. And so that right changes, there. Yeah, that change in impedance, right? That's exactly it. So it's a change in power, which is kind of like a power of reflectance. Is that it's 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 picking up the the contrast between what's above and what's below an interface. And to be exact, I don't want to be a professor here, but impedance is the multiplication of simply density, how dense the rock above is versus how dense and the speed at which sounds travels through those two. So density times velocity of the shale and then. If the density and velocity of the limestone is very different, which it is in this case, you get a huge reflection coefficient. So the bigger mm -hmm. the kick on those wiggles, say to the right, that tells me, hey, something big just changed there. And of course, then I follow that surface, right? I follow it along. I see if it's going up or down. I see yep. beds truncate against it. Oh, man. And, and then, you know, if I see this, let's pretend that we just talked about this. I don't know if you're seeing my hands here. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Shale, shale and limestone. <laughs> now I've got a little, uh, we'll call it porous sand yep. encased right. in shale. Yep. It comes up, it truncates. That's oh, called really stratigraphic traps. Really, <laughs> it truncates there. Well, guess what's going to happen? The reflection coefficient, which just means how strong the signal yep. is. It comes along, it follows that layer, and then it hits the beginning of my strat trap. It changes. Suddenly, I see something change. So let's say it's kicking to the right 10 units. It comes here. Oh, now it's kicking only eight units. And it goes to the other side of the trap. Now it goes back to 10 units. So mm -hmm. by making a map on that layer and looking at the strength of that signal, I can pick things up like sub-unconformity traps, of course, channels. You know, channels come and go, you know, within a shale, porous mm -hmm. sands surrounded by shale. Uh, so I can pick all those things up. So that's kind of the yeah. basic principles, very similar to x-rays. So it's interesting to think about the uh, unconventional Permian Basin seismic. You have a bunch of shale that the signal's kind of traveling well through, and it hits this carbonate body. And that body could just be this big round pad in the middle of the basin, just a big round pad, not much going on. Structurally, maybe it's cracked somewhere. But underneath that, I think that's the target, right? Where the shale and, and then the, under the carbonate turns to carbonate, you have void space there, right? There's a natural, easy to drill spot. So you get under the carbonates, drill along the top of them. That's where most of the oil from below is trapped in one of these pods that we're drilling horizontal wells in. That's kind of the idea, isn't it? For the Permian unconventionals? I mean, uh, what I will say is, is the Permian basin is very complex from a stratigraphic standpoint. And so I like to say, you know, people study stratigraphy, classical stratigraphy, and the, here's, and I always make fun of professors, right? Stratigraphy, they teach us like this book, right? It's Here that you go. cake. It's that cake. Exactly. Here's layer one. Here's layer two. And it's okay. Again, remember, it's my just, soul. I'm just kind of joking, but soul. hey, you know, good, it's good though. There no, you no, go. Here, yeah. you, ju you just learned uh, stratigraphy 101, right? <laughs> now the real world, throw that book away or whatever, the cake away. And the Permian Basin, which, you know, has only been realized relative within the last whatever, we'll call it 20 years That's with right. this really good seismic. What we realize is the Permian Basin, it's just like a bunch of dumps. You know, like we had these high things, 
something dumped here, something dumped there, something dumps from the north comes across. So it's a mishmash. I like to say the stratigraphy, instead of being the, what the book is, it's very complex. And, nice. and so actually there can be very different kinds of traps and plays. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. often it's just in the middle of shales and it's yeah. to do with the depth and the temperature of that shale, sometimes how much it's fractured. And, you know, mm -hmm. you can detect that with seismic. But I oh, do yeah. want to touch on one key point you, you made. And, you know, seismic has always been underutilized. And I like to say my professor in geophysics, a, a brilliant man called Milo Bacchus, those Olga Nedra will know him and others. Uh, you know, he said when I was a student, we're not even touching, scratching the surface of the information that the seismic holds. Then they interviewed him like 20 years later. He said, we're still barely scratching the surface. <laughs> and I'm going to say today, maybe even more so in the Permian Basin, we're barely scratching the surface of what oh, the yeah. seismic can do. And, wow. you know, part of the reason is, well, it takes time. I would time. agree with that 100%. Yeah, yeah, it takes time. You know, you got to pay people and it takes time and you need to get logs and so on. But it, it's short-sighted not to use more of that seismic information. And again, we're using just a fraction of it. Is it an mm -hmm. integration problem? Because the, the science and the mathematics and everything that goes into the visual of the structure that we all get to see in the final image, we all make interpretations on, everyone agrees how that was put together. So we see a physical structure that we're drilling into and trying to understand. Is the problem by getting geophysics to the next level, more geophysics discoveries, or is it the integration between what geophysics is with the next thing next door another department no. that's figuring out the geochemistry what is the no. hang up here in your opinion for seismic evolution i gotta say you guys come up with deep questions so <laughs> you know i can't just uh fire off the answer so let me say i'm gonna say in the permian basin for many years there was conventional wisdom that seismic is not useful in the permian basin and i'm wow. not talking about these last five years or ten years but you know let's jump back a few decades yeah there was conventional wisdom that, you know, I'm drilling wells very densely, which we do in the Permian Basin. And, and yeah, you guys, the seismic, it's ambiguous. Sometimes it gets distorted, which can happen. You know, your image. Yeah. Get, you know what? I prefer just correlating my tops I mean, and it's more accurate. So there was kind of a, I'll call it a, I mean, a, a negative mindset. Acquiring through all those salts and anhydrites and it's it's tough right it's Absolutely. i mean you know your data resolution isn't going to be nearly as good as something you'd see in the gulf or somewhere offshore right so i i can see what you mean by that yeah and so there was that mindset when i would tell people hey you guys you, have you looked at seismic ah you know we don't use that seismic stuff here in the permian basin so again this is decades ago i'm not saying it's recently no. but then now you come to uh here's another it's a slight aside but i like to say you always find new fields at the very limits of the ability of any technology to see it. And by that, let's come to the Arcoma Basin. I worked the Arcoma Basin. I was at CGG. We're shooting new spec lines, just like Fairfield does, spec shoot lines. And I looked at these uh, structures, thrusted structures, but res reservoirs were Spiro and Wapanaka formations, just in case you have any Arcoma Basin listeners. And I looked at those, I said, man, that's, that's easy to find that stuff. <laughs> and then I went and got the papers of when they actually discovered those fields 30 years earlier. And I looked at the seismics like, oh, wow, there's nothing there. These guys were drilling where it was just like the slightest hint of something. Mm -hmm. So this comes back to the issue. That's always the case. Look, when everybody can see it, they go drill, they go do it. So, so you're always pushing the limits of the seismic. 
And, and sure enough, Troy, the integration here, you know. And I'm going to say most people don't like to do integration. Why? Because it's hard work. Oh, yeah. I could, I could mm -hmm. tell you as a geophysicist, and I tell this to, to the geophysicists I, I work with, that's easy. You know, if once you loaded your Segway file, uh, you track a horizon, man, that thing goes, if, you know, in many basins. That's easy. And guess what? I get all my fancy color palettes. You know, I'm fresh, Troy and Skip. Man, look at those greens, those yellows. These geophysicist guys, they, they're really cool. Uh, yeah, I say, so what? And this is what I do with, by the way, the students. They show me this stuff. It's like, hey, man, look, the purple. I said, so what? What does it mean? Oh, well, I, I don't really know what it means, but it looks really cool. Yep. Yeah, well, cool doesn't find oil. Cool doesn't make money. <laughs> oh, my uh, gosh. That's so anyway, so long story short, it is hard work. <laughs> Purple. And then I'm going to quote you. In fact, uh, uh, you know, uh, I've got this on another YouTube video. Why integration is difficult. Every piece of information is imperfect. So what you're looking at is what I call a least squares problem. So imagine a graph, right? Mm -hmm. And you, each piece of information, seismic is here. Uh, well logs are here. Core data is there. It's all scattered, right? So our job in integration is, guess what? Unfortunately, they don't just fall on a line where you say, oh, well, here's the straight line. It matches the seismic. It matches the logs. It matches the core. It wow. all fits, right? Wow. So you're looking at this really ambiguous thing, and you say, i got to put my best line through that. That's <laughs> integration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you try and do it, like we say, with the little red blobs that, uh, you know, kind of an inexperienced geophysicist will try and use it's like, well, one point, yeah, anything fits that red, that little point <laughs> until you've told me something else. Yeah. Uh, I don't really know. I believe you. And I joke with I said, I'm not giving you any money for that. You know, you haven't proven right. anything. You show, <laughs> showing you got a little blob in your wiggles. Uh, All right. So I'm that's the part that people miss. I'm going to go off the wall here because I got some notes that you gave me. Uh oh. What is it about the struggle of integration between departments, between ideas, you know, you, cause it, it's combative, right? I have my model and then you have yours and who's right. It's a, it's kind of, unf it's, it's not the best environment. It's not the funnest environment. You're not at the beach enjoying some beers. You're art. You're kind of arguing, <laughs> working yourself to try to figure it out. Well, how does Shakespeare relate to that? Oh God, man, you're, you're really throwing Ooh. a tough one on that, Dang, but I will bring in the heat. Uh, yeah, you're, you're putting me on the spot here. And uh, well, you're the Shakespeare. You'll be pleased to hear I got my Shakespeare quotations with me. <laughs> so is that a and book I need to buy? I think I need to buy that book. Here's my recommendation. Really, everybody buy this book. Why? And I don't mean to, to get off on a tangent. You know, Shakespeare was an incredible mind. Just accept that for now. That's right. And true. he had incredible mm -hmm. ability to communicate super concisely. Wow. So anytime you open something here, it's like, man, you, you couldn't say it better than that. And we're talking about he's he's explaining human feelings. He's explaining how people are in situations. I mean, I'll still look at this again. You know, I underline all my kind of favorite quotes and like, yeah, he understood this wow. perfectly, but he explained it. It wasn't like a 10 minute ramble. Mm -hmm. He explained it in like a few wow. key phrases. So that's why Shakespeare, it, it, to me, is fun and is critical. So if you're working in the English language, if you're writing uh, articles, if you're whatever, practicing speaking, read Shakespeare, read them out loud, you know, mm -hmm. and you're going to get the rhythm and you're going to be able to communicate more effectively. So uh, now the, the second piece of your question about integration mm -hmm. is you are back to the human side, you know, so 
you're talking about egos, you're talking about turf, you're talking about precedent. Well, we've always been the ones to decide the final answer. Who are these guys coming in from this other department telling yeah. us it's not our answer? <laughs> yeah. You know, we've improved a lot. The in, again, that's, that's 50 years ago, probably, where they all sat in their corners. You know, geophysicists no. were in one corner, geologists were in another. They didn't share any information. We've really come a long ways. Seismic has helped that because seismic is a great integration tool. Yep. But mm -hmm. hey, we're all humans, right? No one's perfect yet. <laughs> so I hope I, I kind of satisfactorily addressed your, your Shakespeare question. Yeah, you absolutely did. I appreciate mm -hmm. it. I told you I was coming off the wall with that one, but okay. you know, it felt like it, uh, it was going to be interesting. Skippo, anything else as far as just the fundamentals of seismic, the recording of it, kind of what we talked about, or we want to jump into this? I want to I get your opinion on uh, shear wave seismic. And I want to I know, in your opinion, what the benefits and what the pitfalls of that is, because you always hear about this. Like if we only had shear wave, if we don't blah, 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 you know, if we had a nine component, blah, 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 blah. And, 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 you know, it's like, that's the solution to everything. And is it really the solution or will it help us get closer to that solution? And, you know, I'm going to say over the years, what, what I've concluded is nothing is ever the solution. Because again, we're in a multidisciplinary world where again, every piece of information is imperfect. So I don't care what it is, whether it's a drilling technique, whether it's a logging technique, whether it's a seismic technique, no, no one technique will ever be the solution. Yeah. The nice thing about shear waves is that, remember we talked about this cross plot where every piece yeah. of information, it's giving you another point in there. It is giving you another perspective on mm -hmm. the subsurface. Mm -hmm. And, you know, any perspective on the subsurface gives you more points to try and decide, does my line go this way? Does my line go that way? So, you know, I'm supportive of that method. Now, all these methods in the end, it's always a cost benefit right. uh, balancing act, right? And, right. you know, getting to the shear wave methods, if you're going to do new acquisition, and I was working in Denver when they came up, uh, the, the uh, Colorado School of Mines Consortium came up with this 3D9C, so 3D acquisition, nine component. Mm -hmm. And I was at CGG, and we went out yeah. with the special phones. Wow. And, you know, we've used that. But that's expensive, you know, so yeah. that you better be fairly sure. Now, we can also get that information by using the offsets. Uh, so the farther yeah. your most distant recording channel is, the more different the angle is in the subsurface. I didn't go into that, but yeah. when you hit these layers this way, you look at a certain picture. But then if you do the change the angle and look at it at 20 degrees, you actually get a slightly different picture. If you look mm -hmm. at 30 degrees, you get another. So that's used in the Gulf Coast and, and uh, Nigeria, places where they talk about AVO. You've probably heard yeah. that. Yep. Amplitude, Amplitude versus, versus offset. So yeah. what drives AVO? Shear wave information. So you're not recording it, but you're studying the effects of changes in shear waves by the variation in amplitudes versus offset. So there are a range of techniques, you know, so, and people are doing that right now in the Permian Basin. They are using those far offsets and the far angles to get shear wave information right. without putting mm -hmm. those crews out there. And mm -hmm. I would say that's becoming very routine. So one should use that. That's a, that's a calculation of P wave to S wave based on the, some kind of algorithm thing. That's correct. Well, it's yeah. actually not that difficult. It, it's the, the P wave velocity divided by the shear wave velocity. Yeah. That's it. And, oh, and wow. yeah. VP over VP, VS yeah. is one of the key. Yeah. That's really the key information because until that point, remember when 
when you just have P waves, you just know the velocity of P waves. Right. So that one piece of information. You get the shear wave, you get a different measurement. Oh, and by setting it offset, you're actually recording the shear wave. Yeah. You're getting a signal related to the shear wave velocity, to be exact. But yes, you're not recording the shear wave itself, but you're seeing the effects of the changes in shear wave properties, if that makes sense. And it, it means you get that information without having to put a special shear wave crew. Right. That's yeah. why it's very cost effective to Got use mm -hmm. far offset data in the Permian Basin, and it's used. Yeah. Um, now, I'll do a quick uh, other thing that you may hear about anisotropy. You may have, it's a big word, right? Great big long word. But when you go to the field, I can put my source here, my receiver there, right? And measure a point in the subsurface, like north and south. Then yeah. I can take that crew, I can move it around, and now I'm recording across that east and west. And guess mm -hmm. what? Just like shear wave information is new, that reading going east-west is different from the reading going north-south. And if you go north-east-south-west, it's another reason. So yeah. in effect, what happens is now, because of all these recording channels and the compute power, we're now recording at all these angles, which has yeah. given us even more information. Yeah. Why is it important? Because it's being used, and I'm not saying it's easy, but at the leading edge of technology, they're using it to recognize fracture detection and fracture mm -hmm. density. Yeah, right. Well, and we, so something importantly, and Skippo, your thesis kind of brought this to my attention. When you have the ability to start making predictions as a geologist of which direction the fractures would be possibly going, yeah. based on the based on structural geology, right? The real big structural geology. Everything yeah. broke this way, and then everything started breaking this way. Like it's very predictive on how yeah. structure fractures. But what you're doing is, okay, you can go that way and that way, and you can run your lines the same way those two structures were actually popping in the, you know, through the tectonic events. Now you can go 360, you run angles all through that. Whoa. Mm -hmm. that and awesome. so, you know, the implication of that is that sadly for uh, geologists, and, and, you know, again, I'm kind of joking, but sadly for geologists, you go to the outcrop here at the edge of the basin, and you say, oh, my faults are going this way. And you go to the other edge of the basin. Oh, my faults are going that way. Therefore, in between, they must be doing this. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, Mother Nature always throws a kink. So you nope. do that. You come in the middle and darn, they rotated 45 degrees. That's why you need the seismic to understand the anisotropy yes. in your acreage position, yeah. not just nothing against geologists. I love being in the field, but I'm just saying that's only a piece of the information. You do need to use right. it, but you'd better get your anisotropy and your fracture direction and density you can also make an estimate of how densely fractured these zones are get yeah. that from your 3d seismic and again we're just scratching the surface of that right now yeah but that's the like you said though that's also kind of the beauty of integration with source to sink right if you look at outcrop and you're looking at that real rock and you're seeing how these fractures are being created based on not only just the uplift of the outcrop itself, but by the orientation of those primary fault zones going through the base. And now you can say, okay, these shear are these lateral or strike slip faults that are going in this orientation or opening up fractures here. Then you take that seismic and you're looking at, oh, hey, we have a density of fractures in this zone. Uh, we can make a prediction that they're going to be opened in this orientation and they'll probably be closed in this orientation based on what we saw on that outcrop. But that's, that's kind of the beauty of the whole story. And that's, that's what I, that's what I love about seismic data because it's painting that picture of the subsurface and then just allowing your mind to figure out all the complexities of mother nature and all these little pockets of, you know, 
oh, maybe, maybe if we drill here, a horizontal well here, we're going to have, we don't need to pump as much down. Or maybe if we drill here, we're going to get too much water. That's like little things like that, that, that come up when you're, when you're doing exploration is just. Well, those fracture densities and directions will have major impact on your IPs, your initial potentials, Mm -hmm. your decline rate. So they're tied to money, you know, so there's, there's no doubt. But now, since you guys put me on the spot, I'm going to give you a little (laughs) something. Now, Shakespeare didn't write this. I came up with it. It's not going to be on the same scale, but I will tell you, it ties into integration. So when I was there at Imperial College, I had a professor, and he came up and he told us, the best geologist is the one who has seen the most rocks. And it sounded logical, but as I worked over my career, you know what I concluded? And this is only one piece of this. I'm, I'm going to tell you the other piece in a moment. The best geologist is the one who's seen the most seismic lines. Because when you start looking at regional seismic lines, you get to see again, not just what's happening here. You get to see these structural styles. You get to map these things in 3D. Of course, the reality is you should have been in the outcrop to understand them. But, you know, again, you'll understand a lot more as, as a geologist. You embrace seismic. You work with it. Now, what's the second piece? The best geophysicist. It's not the one who comes up with the red color palette or whatever. <laughs> it's not, right? The little blobs, you know, lots of blobs. I can create thousands of blobs for you anytime you want. But the one who has seen the most rocks. Wow. So like I say, Shakespeare didn't write this, but maybe he could have if he had been around. If he had been born in Slayton, <laughs> Texas, he might have come up with that. So like I say, the best geologist is the one who has seen the most seismic. And the best geophysicist is the one who has seen the most rocks. Yeah. Now, motivation for integration is an interesting concept because you got to be, there's a prize to do it, right? You got to be willing to do it. So now today we have two arguments to the model that we're all using. Skippo said source to sink. Well, there's deep to seep now. Mm-hmm. What is this concept of serpentinization and these deep processes that are connected to the crust and totally integrated with what we see in the reservoirs? The story is much bigger than we ever thought. So now we have a motivator. There's a new model to come together, integrate and test. We've tested the source to sink a lot. Mm-hmm. Somebody's out there, and I know they are, because I am, and we're testing the other model. And that is what's fascinating. That's what's driving, I think, integration. Well, well, not, not to cut you off again, but it's not just source to sink or deep to seep. It's both, right? right. That's the true integration of it all, That's right? True. Understanding what's going on in the subsurface and then what's going on from top to bottom and how those two methods blend together. That's, that's, that's the beauty in it. Bang, love it. Perfect. But I'm, you know, I will say, and I think I mentioned this to Troy the other day, you know, I'm what I call a bottoms up seismic interpreter. So, you know, someone says, hey, look at this nice seismic line, see my prospect. And I say, I don't want to see your prospect. I want to look at the bottom of the seismic. So I go right down to the bottom. (laughs) Say, oh, okay. Here's a big fault down here. Okay. That might've impacted that prospect. Absolutely. And if that fault moved after that trap was formed up here, maybe it did something that caused the oil to leak or the gas to leak, yeah. et cetera. So, you know, I'm a believer from, you know, you go as deep as you can. You, you think it's all to spur thinking. Oh, yeah. In the end, it's all about the thinking, right? I mean, these mm-hmm. shear waves, uh, anisotropy, you know, deep plumes, whatever. Mm-hmm. The real purpose is to expand your thinking. And that's what we tell the students, you know, many do think like I push the F5 key that's supposed to find the oil. I'm ready to go. No, you don't know anything. I press my <laughs> inversion button and it all does it. It does everything for me. <laughs> that's correct. There's a lot of that thinking. And I'll tell you, we see that. Like, I know what's going on, but uh, 
you know, there's one attribute which is called sweetness. And, and yeah. it seems like you've probably heard it for the, for the last. And by the way, I know the lady who came up with it. I've got nothing against it, but I, I don't know. She must have some kind of LinkedIn campaign or something because all my students come in and goes, oh, we ran sweetness. We know where the oil is. It's like, no, you don't. So uh, and, and the point is, again, it's not that there's anything wrong with the attribute. It was created for a purpose. Yep. integrated with other information. It's an right. excellent attribute. But if you just walk in and think, I run sweetness. Yeah. And, and, and I'll give you a quick example of that, that uh, in the Gulf of Mexico data sets, I work with some of my, uh, my students. Guess where the biggest sweetness anomalies are? Right in the bottom of synclines. And so what happens is in the Gulf of Mexico, these bottoms of synclines, they're close to faults. They're just like overpressured, very porous, wet sands. And those are way bigger than the anomalies at the true commercial hydrocarbon locations. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you go around looking for all the big red blobs. You're going to drill a bunch of dry holes in the bottom of synclines. You go look at the little tough one that maybe you need a bit more information to confirm and you're going to have to tie your wall. That's the one that's going to make you money. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I like that. I like that a lot because I think that was something that, I mean, I learned definitely was being able to understand and co-render different attributes, right? To cross check one another, because each attribute will tell you something. There isn't, like you said, there isn't an oil attribute. These attributes tell you a very specific thing that's going on within the seismic data. And then you can make interpretations based on that, right? It's like you said, it's, is it an oil button or is it the bottom of a syncline where we just have a bunch of overpressured sand, right? <laughs> that's right, yeah. But no, that's it. It's all about the integration. Again, nothing yeah. for or against any single attribute. There's nothing wrong with sweetness no. if you're using it correctly, if you're tying exactly. it. And the, the authors of these attributes, they would tell you the same thing, but mm -hmm. people think, oh, here's a shortcut. F6 finds the oil. No. <laughs> All right. Let's now transition for the rest of drill down into this experience, this incredible experience that I haven't been able to talk to anybody. I have not personally had this conversation with someone who has been involved from the beginning to end of the $2 billion investment. Well, relatively early to, I'll call it about midpoint. And okay. We can, we can drill down on those elements. So, Please. so first of all, so, you know, I was not the founder, you know, uh, you know, founders of, these companies that can raise two billion, they have to have a certain pedigree. And, and the founder came from a major oil company and had been, you know, exploration manager. I was much more on the technical side, but I was brought in on the technical side. So here's one thing with a private equity company. This was the first time I went to a job and I paid them to work for them. Hmm. So you want to be part of our private equity company? Well, you have to invest in the company. Gotcha. So I, I wrote a check on my first day with quite a few zeros that uh, it took me a long time before any salary ever recompensated me wow. for that. And that's okay. You know, they want people to believe in the venture. That's and correct. so that's what I will say. You, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, most people who believe in something are ready to invest, whether yeah. it's their time, whether it's their money. And I like to say, so this is part one. You don't learn the oil business for real until you have put your own money in the oil business. Wow. I'm just going to say that when, when, and not to take away from anybody, but you know, it really hurts when you had to write that first check. I'm, I'm showing up at work and I'm paying them. Wow. Right. But that's, that's the way it works often yeah. in these private equity companies. Nothing wrong with that. Now mm -hmm. 
I, I'm afraid I have to tell you that in the end, that venture didn't pan out. Mm. So I actually lost all my investment. Wow. So the second thing I will tell you is you don't really, really learn the oil business till you've lost money in the oil business. Mm. You'll learn if you invest, but until you lose some of that money, you won't really understand. Mm -hmm. After that, you're even more careful. You're even more concerned about integration and getting things done and so yeah. on. Wow. So now you, you could ask, so, so why did that company not end up being successful? Well, as we know in this business, many factors, including price cycles and absolutely price cycles were a big thing. They raised the money in good times, which I think was about 2011 or so, maybe wow. 2010. Wow. And you know, there was the crash that came in around 2014 or so. I, I don't have the price chart in front of me, but somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. So they got hit very hard. Now, that wasn't the only factor, but that was, a not, that was a key factor. You know, the other thing is they had a strategy, and that's fine. You know, each private equity venture has a strategy. Cool. The strategy of we're, we're swinging for the fences. That, that was the strategy, right? So uh, we don't really look at little amplitudes, right? In fact, <laughs> and really backed up, in, integrated amplitudes. I'm not saying bad ones, you know. There are still amplitudes to be found in the Gulf of Mexico. They tend to be small. They're not going to give you huge returns and not company makers. So this company, you know, did decide we're swinging for the fences, largely driven by the investors' request, by the way. So, hey, this right. management team, you're swinging for the fences. So nothing right. against the management team. Now, what they found themselves doing is guess what they did? They started working subsalt Gulf of Mexico. We're talking $300 million wells, right? Wow. You're partnering with the big guns, you know, so now I'm partners with, the good news is I'm partnered with Chevron. I'm partners wow. with Anadarko. I'm partners. Wow. Uh, uh, but guess what? When you get a cash call, you need some big money all of a sudden, right? Yes, and by the way, as an investor, every cash call had the name Alan Bertain on it. So here's 300 million and uh, Alan, here's your piece of the 300 million that you're paying for. Working interest, you call it. That is correct. That is mm -hmm. correct. And so that's the way they structure. Again, this, this is done all the time, but I'm just saying this focuses the mind, right? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, but just to say, yeah, hey, w w cash calls are really scary things, by the way. If you don't get cash calls, you know, it's like, oh my God, here comes the next cash call. That means I got to get my in the old days, it was a paper check. Now it's a digital check or whatever. Yeah. But I got to write a check for this amount, you know, and, you know, those keep coming, right? Oh, good news is we're, we're going to drill another well with Chevron. Bad news is I got to write my check on that. So <laughs> anyway, but that's okay. But here's the bottom line. So if you do not have very, very deep pockets, it's tough to play with the big guys. So what we found ourselves doing is here we are, 12% work in interest in this multi-billion dollar, like, okay, so you drilled your $300 million well, now I need four appraisal wells, and someday I'm going to build a huge facility. You know how much cash that needs? And, and the other thing is some of these big discoveries out there, subsalt, long ways offshore, they weren't coming online for 10 years. So oh. now, yeah, or, or five, at least five anyway, maybe I'm exaggerating slightly. But here you are as a small company, I'm 12% working interest, so I have no say, right? It's going to be Chevron that's going to decide and and we'll pretend yeah. Exxon, right? So you, you 12%, you be quiet. You can come to our meetings and, and sit <laughs> in. And sure, if, if Alan's got something cool on the seismic to show us, we'll listen to Alan for a little bit and then we'll do what we want kind of thing. So again, I'm kind of, you know, having a bit of fun here, but, but yeah. you get the idea. Look, Absolutely. you hold 50%, you're in control or 51. 
And so what they found themselves is with what I'm going to call stranded assets. So we had discoveries. We were technical successes. You know, we had found oil. Uh, we teamed up with the big companies. We'd made good decisions, but we didn't have the deep pockets to write it out. And then yeah. when that price crash came, now you've really limited your abilities to get yeah. more money, to write it out. And so in the end, I, I forget what it happened because I'd left by then. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at that point, I forget, you know, the other investors, the big, the big guys, they just kind of squeezed, you know, it's like, well, listen, we'll give you this much. So by the end of it, there, there wasn't much left wow. of that investment. And it's, that's okay. That, you know, like we said, this is like my crash of 86. I learned a lot from yeah. losing that money. It's interesting analog kind of for me, because I'm learning more and more about the mining industry. And one of the problems in the mining industry is, okay, you have a discovery. Okay, you think it's worth the money. And I agree, but it's going to take me a lot of time and a lot of effort to get that to production, to sales. So there's a huge disconnect in explorers, I think, thinking about who are you selling this project to? And you better have that lined up and secured uh, and that, that's what I got from your story on that for sure. Along with uh, many other stuff. That was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is a key thing. And, and of course this all comes down to these private equity people and other business people. They got this little thing they call NPV 10. Yeah. Right? I heard this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that just means that, you know, they run their numbers, their economics is if you're, we'll pretend you're borrowing money from the bank at 10%, right? And you pay them the 10% back every year, right? That's the interest rate you're paying the bank back. And whatever is left after that is your real profit, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when something, and by the way, NPV 10 is a really simple equation in Excel. You could go find it, just NPV. So uh, I don't have an MBA, but I can run NPV 10 calculations. <laughs> but, uh, but bottom line is when you delay something, just test it. Just run NPV 10 where you get, you know, whatever. I, I invest one, I get 10 back in three years and five years and 10 years. That NPV 10 eats the value really, really quickly. And so that's scary when something needs many years to come get your money yeah. back or, right. or to be put online. In that case, the oil sat there. It's like, well, we still need to discuss if we're going to produce it this way or that way, build a pipeline over here, build a pipeline wow. yeah. over there. You know, like depending, yeah, depending how we're going to build out this field, right? That's how we got to build the infrastructure. And so I can imagine, great, we got this discovery, but we're going to plug it. And we're going to, you know, like you said, five, six years before we even decide how we're going to either develop the rest of this field, or even if we want to produce it based on the price itself. So that's, oh, that's a scary, scary. And, and I do believe one of those fields is on track to be produced. I think one of them is still stranded. If I recall, I haven't checked them recently. And so that mm. one, maybe another five years. Well, by then, MPV 10 is close to zero, probably. Yeah. Wow. I'm pretty sure we're going to do multiple shows, Alan, because there's just so much to talk about. We need to get into the completion part of the show now. That was sure. drilled down, and man, that, that was... was... Me and Skip started a podcast, and we weren't sure what was going to happen, but it was about our experiences in the Permian Basin. And we experienced these and had these conversations with all these other colleagues that were experiencing the Permian Basin. So our show, you're born there. You certainly have experience in the Permian Basin. Uh, and that's what we actually created. We didn't know that we we're going to do this, but it's a very unique network that we've created. And this unique network has totally new ideas, new information being put together. And then we're applying it to real world applications. We're trying to make a difference. And at the end of the day, above everything that we do, we're trying to lower our risk. 
that's what the PB podcast is. This is our experience with Mr. Alan Bertain. Let's roll into the completion part of the show, sir. I've enjoyed this, Skippo. Oh, man, this has been a blast. I'm not going to lie. And, and you guys have been great. I've really enjoyed talking to you here. You've had some great questions, uh, including the Shakespeare one. Yeah. <laughs> so your investment back into the college students, I mean, Evolve, when you were showing me some of those slides, and maybe this is where you can share some of your screen, it is incredible. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I feel like Evolve has truly created one of the most important things in the, in the entire planet right now. It's the it's the integration of young minds thinking of ge using geology, geophysics, geoscience to try to understand the subsurface. And your this integration between all these regions and all this culture that you're doing at Evolve is, I mean, I that's fascinating to me. I mean, you guys are building it. They're doing it. Teams from America, around the world, coming together. Tell us more about Evolve. Evolve is uh, an SEG program, and it's basically, think of it as a six-month virtual internship for the students using real-world data sets. So this was virtual before COVID. So the, mm -hmm. the idea was even before then that we were working in Zoom, we were working in some cases in the cloud, and we're taking, as we said, these universities and these students from all over the world, and we give them real-world data sets. So we give them that Gulf of Mexico data, and we give them real uh, well trajectories, directional surveys. We give them real LAS files or raster images, you know, just plain old, those mm. things that people used oh, to draw yeah. on, et cetera. And we only give them one aspect of the exercise. We say, here's your data. Go find me the best investment opportunity here. Wow. That's it. So we don't rare say earths, doesn't matter. Carbon sequestration, <laughs> rare earths, oil and gas, mine, anything. So I, yeah, I got to tell you. So, so I'm going to tell a story, but I will say the other thing, the key to this is, A, for them, it's real world. And believe me, it's, it's almost a shock to them. They're used to, again, what they learn in school. You know, things are like yeah. this and, you know, to find all is supposed to be easy, et cetera. And then suddenly we just throw them in the deep end where, by the way, we don't even know the answers. <laughs> and we do that on purpose. But the key is we got all these mentors. And so, like, last week we had what we call mid-project presentations. I told some of the students, you know how many years of experience we have in this digital rooms? Uh, 400 plus years. I said, you know how many times in your career you're going to have 400 years of experience in front of you? Probably zero. Wow. Because, you know, many of these companies, they, they let those people go. It's sad. Right. So that's what we provide them. We throw them in the deep end with some very, very tough challenges. But we have all these hundreds of years of experience of mentors that support them. Incredible. So, so basically that's it. But as far as them being creative, you know, they catch us off guard sometimes. So one one year, this, we gave this team uh, Mississippi Canyon uh, or main pass data in the Gulf of Mexico. So we say, how's it looking? What do you think your investment opportunity is going to be? Is it going to be like myosine turbidites or this and that? Oh, well, we think we're going to go for gas hydrates in here. Oh, man. Uh -oh. So they and guess what? They were engineers. And uh -oh. so I looked at my colleagues and you said, you know, we hadn't thought of that, honestly. And we like to say, we learned too, you know, so yeah. we hadn't really thought of that, but you know what? The engineers, that's not a bad idea. I said, you show me the economics, you show me it can work. Right. That's a very valid exercise here. And the regulations, mm -hmm. you're, you're still in there. And, and that too, regulations of course. Yeah. Of yeah. Not going to work out too good. But that's the key that, you know, it is a six month 
wow. virtual internship with we're talking they're working in petrel they're working in this, uh, halliburton's decision space software they're working in mm -hmm. kingdom wow. uh, they're using some of these high-end tools like geophysical insights paradise software what's the uh what's the start end date of that six months well, uh, it, it used to be longer, but then our college professors got onto us and told us we had to follow a semester. So we basically start, you know, January 1st, okay. plus or minus, and then the main phase ends at the end of May. Now, because it's uh, the student program is SEG, mm -hmm. uh, we like to have them go to the annual meeting, which is usually like September. You've been to it. You were there. Oh, yeah. the, so September, October. So some of them, of course, they go to field camps and things, but those that can stay with us, we work with them. So by the end, those who have got the time have worked with us for 10 wow. months. Wow. And then they come, and then the, the culmination of all this is they come to the annual meeting, and we make them do what we call the NAPE presentation. I, I think you're familiar with North American oh, Prospect yeah. Expo. So it's like, okay, students, you did your 45-minute presentation to us all. That's easy. You got 12 minutes to summarize your 10 months of work now and tell us why we should be investing yeah. in your prospect. Why? Why, yeah. why, I, why I need to open up the checkbook. Why, why do I need to have your prospect on my portfolio? Absolutely. And I will tell you, we, we've got a, a, a great, uh, I mean, all the mentors are great, but one in particular, you, maybe you need to get him on the show sometime. He's Mr. Scott King. He was at a company that was in the Permian Basin and I think other places, Matador Petroleum. And oh, then he, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. And then he IPO'd it. I forget what the sec, I can't remember. Second Matador was Matador Resources. He was part of the management team. He hired a bunch of people that now work in the Permian Basin. Wow. Uh, and he's one of our mentors. And he always says it's the students, you know, usual, they start at Strat Column, you know, like here's my Strat Column. And again, remember, they've just come out of college. So yeah. they start, you know, the Gulf of Mexico opened in Jurassic. Here's the salt. And then they go through every single layer and tell us this one's 58 feet thick. This one's 62 feet. And he says, I don't care what the stratigraphy is. I want to know which zones you want me to invest in and why. Yeah. And, and, and so it's a great. Most of them have yeah. never had that kind of real hard hitting feedback. And so it yeah. is a life changing experience for these students. I, I will also I, tell you. And I. And I think no. you're, I think you're doing a, a very valuable thing by basically teaching these students, Hey, you're a geologist, but right. Your main goal is to de-risk and add value to these prospects, right? It's not to tell us, you know, your favorite, you know, fossil or, you know, <laughs> whatever in this formation, it, your goal is to tell me, this is where you drill. This is where you make money. That's and great. we remind them of that. And, you know, at the beginning, they're almost invariably like that, like, Here's the strat column with yeah. here are the dinosaurs and here are the ammonites and here's yeah. the whatever the the trilobites. I hold on, you know, there's nothing wrong with those. You use those to establish the ages, but I want to know where I'm going to put my money and why. Wow. Mm -hmm. and, and and so we take them through prospect generation. And and a lot of this, by the way, is regional exploration. And we get people, you know, many of the national oil companies, they work field studies. So they do. You know, they build a reservoir model. They got 150 wells in, in, you know, one square mile or a few square miles. Yeah. They do the reservoir model. They're doing uh, reservoir simulation, et cetera. And then they come here and I say, you know, here's an area like Matagorda Island, offshore Gulf of Mexico. This area is huge. Mm -hmm. um, you're not working in an area where somebody already found the oil. You got to find the oil first before wow. you do all that. And it, it's a totally different experience. You know, when you're wow. used to working that postage stamp and now it's like, yep. I got faults everywhere. I got potential yep. reservoirs everywhere. Where do I even begin? Huge learning wow. experience. 
We teach them volumetrics, how to calculate mm -hmm. how much oil is actually in their prospect or gas. Yep. And then we teach them, you know, basic level economics, including MPV yeah. 10. I was going to say, would, do you take them through kind of like a general more, I'm not saying you this method exactly, but like a Rose and Associates kind of risk analysis method? Or and just... I, and uh, I can tell you that Rosen Associates is one of the companies supporting it. So the students nice. get the Rosen Associates oh, software. That's and invaluable. I'm try trying to think. So, you know, we're supported yeah. by a, a whole series of company, you know, drilling info slash uh, Inverus helps. Yeah. By cool. when we've got our offshore Matagorda Island teams, they get the data, the production data, so they can look at production profiles in, wow. you know, whichever county there or down, down wow, south, man. compare it, get analogs. So they're getting a lot of support. And, and again, the key is working with the, the mentors and the people right. with decades and decades of experience. Right. I would love to talk to you more. And we can do this offline about the what the Research Institute, Magnum Research Institute. We got involved with the University of Guelph out of Ontario, Canada. Hmm. There are now 30 students and five teams and they're studying Magnum science, the model that we have applied to all the different industries. And I would love to get this team because they're they're good, man. They're writing reports. They're sending us stuff. They're engaged in it. I mean, teaming up somehow with with that idea mixed with Evolve for an, uh, a bigger uh, final presentation that integrates departments, integrates totally. You know, these are business majors. These are non-scientists, business majors that are understanding what Evolve's doing and understanding it as how do you move with that information? If that information is true or it has an approximation of reality, how do you make a business out of it? How do you get it to the next level? I'd love to talk to you more about that. That'd be fascinating. Yeah, would be happy to do that. And again, you know, the relationships we build over whether it's six months or 10 months, I call them lifelong relationships. You know, these students, oh, yeah. they call me like, oh, I'm interviewing with these three companies. Here's what I'm getting from this. What do you think I should do? Wow. And, you know, I kind of give them background information. Now, I should mention in passing that, um, you know, it's pretty simple that if this works so well for these students, it might work for early career professionals, zero to we'll call it five years. Yeah. Or, you know, even mm -hmm. Mr. Mike Forrest, they call him the father of bright spots because he, he is. And uh, that's another story. We'll talk about that another time. <laughs> but, you know, he's got six years of experience and he says, I learn. I'm learning all the time. So zero to 10 years. So we've come up with Evolve Professional, which is specifically for people that have just started their careers, want to be exposed to people with 30, 40, 50, 60 years of experience. Ooh. I recommend, by the way, data from totally different areas because, you know, geology, you, you got to stretch your mind all the time. So oh, if yeah. you work in Permian Basin, come work a data in the Gulf of Mexico. Or if you're in the Gulf of Mexico, come work something in the Permian Basin. Mm -hmm. And so we have Evolve Professional. Uh, we've set up a separate entity to deal with that and it's called next gen training partners wow and that's for evolved professional and other things but uh, anyway yeah we think uh, that uh, we just built an incredible relationship with the students and lifelong relationships uh, maybe you'll get some of them on the show here someday yeah. they're going to do up. some great things yes let's do it that'd be great shows to have me and skips were picking their brain about what the, what they're doing what they're thinking oh yeah oh I mean, many of them haven't, some are in Equinor, some gone like Shearwater, you know, the service company. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just trying to think. Some have gone to other places like Oceaneering, you know, the, the surveying company. One of our Mexico students went to Oceaneering. I'm trying wow. to Schlumberger. Several of them have ended up in uh, Schlumberger. One, yeah, one's in Romania. And again, these students are all over the world. They're, they're oh. networks for life. Wow. That is fantastic. The investment back into the next generation is a huge thing for you, obviously. Yep. And 
on behalf of everybody you get to work with that is a young professional or in, in graduate school, I mean, just thank you for your time and your attention to do that because it's huge. That is mm-hmm. really doing something. So thank and, you. you know, just to, to kind of relate back to that point, you know, as, as I kind of look at what I'm doing, you know, I learned a lot of lessons along the way. It was challenging. You know, I've had quite a few busts, you know, oil price ups and downs. I think the, the students coming out now or the early career professionals, I'm afraid, I, I think you're going to have the same. You're going to have some ups and downs. And if I can help them, if I can share some experiences with them, that's what I enjoy doing. Maybe they'll avoid mm-hmm. one or two of the little glitches or mistakes I made along the way. <laughs> so could I, could I end on one Shakespeare quote? Yes. Oh, yes. So, you know, you, you might say, you know, so, and people ask me this, you know, why are you doing this, Alan? You know, and some of the students, you know, they'll come at the end of the year and say, man, you gave so much of yourself. Why are you doing this? You know, so Shakespeare, guess what? He, he already had it covered here. It happens to be one of his lesser known plays called Measure for Measure. Okay. And, you know, a little bit of old English. So you, you, you may have, I may have to go a little bit slowly, but he says, heaven doth with us as we with torches do so a torch right mm. not not light them for themselves for if our virtues did not go forth of us twere all alike as if we had them not mm. so what he's saying is when you've been given whatever skills or you've built some skills the real reason you got them is to share them with mm. others and if you don't do that it's as if you never had those skills Wow. So 14, whatever it was, 92 or actually 15 or something, Shakespeare had it covered. Wow. Yeah. Get involved in the story. You can't sit and watch life. That doesn't work. It's not a Netflix documentary. You well, get involved. Well, exactly. And if you've been blessed with a career that you're able to learn, earn a living, uh, time to share with others. You know, you made it. You enjoyed life. Help the next generation to build their own career, to learn from your experience. Don't just sit there. I mean, take some vacations, do some things. And I joke with Mr. Mike Forrest, one of the greats of the industry. Again, we could do a show on him with with him. He's 90 years old. He gets up at three in the morning. He's writing notes on his yellow pad. Uh, He's got ideas. He works with the student. What an inspiration. That's what we should all be like. He's, Mm -hmm. He's my role model. Wow. That was a fantastic show. I hope we get to do another one in another way and definitely Mm -hmm. stay connected. Skippo, I think this is the end of our experience with Alan Bertain. This was, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed every bit of the show. This was fantastic. I want to say other words, but we'll, we'll keep it professional. Fantastic. I I, I have two. You guys are great. And yeah, I I want to be in Midland here Mm -hmm. whenever it is just over a month away. I think I'll, I'll be there with you. We'll be in touch. You'll know it all. Yeah. Details. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Great pleasure for me. Thank you for your time. Mr. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we're out. And we're out.